Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast wondering if Jay-Z is really ready to have a 100th problem. My name is Rupert Meadows and I've written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sports. My co-host Cameron McDonald has spent three years working as an FA licence intermediary here in the UK. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Rupert. And plenty to talk about this week uh, from various transfers. Uh, and maybe if we have time, uh, what you mentioned there, Jay-Z's 100th potential problem uh, in buying Spurs. Uh, but first, we're going to start off with something that I never really thought we'd be talking about, um, which is PG Mole potentially finally getting something right. Um, something I never thought, I, I didn't think those words would ever pass my lips, but um, they've what come out with... What a cynical man you are, Cameron. A cynical man indeed, but normally correct with these things, um, because they, they normally are <laughs> never ever getting anything right, but they've announced a couple of changes ahead of the new season. Um, and, you know, we've talked about this before, I'm always a big fan of things being trialled, and if they work, they're being implemented, uh, and this is something sure. that is, is exactly that. It's a time change. There's a few different changes, uh, including sort of, in you know... Um, uh, rules around sort of time, um, sort of injuries and stuff like that. But this is all about um, timekeeping, and it is uh, an adjustment in the Premier League and across the English Football League to the World Cup sort of style time changes we saw, um, which is, as you'll remember, sort of those long sort of ten minutes out of time, twelve minutes out of time, fourteen, fifteen minutes out of time, if there was that time wasted. Um, and it's part of a crackdown that PG Mole are doing. Um, in response to sort of just general time wasting and time that the ball is out of play um, in them in their leagues, it is important to do this, and it's good to see them be sort of reacting to this because the average time that the ball was in play last season in the Premier League was fifty four minutes and forty six seconds, in the Championship fifty two minutes, in the League One it's fifty minutes, and in League Two it's forty eight minutes. So at the top level, <laughs> you're getting less than two thirds of it. In League Two, you're barely getting half a football match for, for, for the football match you go to. It's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, the, those are down from, from what they've been in the past, but not significantly drastically. Um, and it's funny because I feel like it's only really been in the last year or two that that's really come to light, that people have started saying, you know, wow, that game, there are only like 38 minutes in the whole match where the ball was in play. Mm. Um, and it's funny because... Sometimes things like that come out and you think you know the game and then something, you know, this is this is new. Um, at least, I have, you know, two years ago it was new or so. You're right. And although it is true that last season in the Premier League, 54 minutes and 46 seconds on average is the lowest it's been since records began. Uh, it was only lower by a few more seconds, but it's been going down steadily year on year. Um, and I, I just think, you know, from a fan perspective, whatever your team, whatever your sort of team style if you sort of are, come from a team that is sort of better at holding on for wins and there's stuff like that, if you sort of take a step back, surely as a fan of football rather than as a team, it's ridiculous. If you're paying your money either for a ticket to go to the game or for a ticket to watch it, or, or sorry, for your price on TV or, or whatever it is that you're doing or to go down to, to the pub and you're sort of trying to enjoy some time with your mates, you're getting less than two thirds of what you paid for. Um, and, and it is just it well, is ridiculous. Yeah that we've got to this point you pay for 90 minutes of football uh, and sometimes you're getting about 54 minutes or in, in the case of some other leagues 48 minutes and obviously these are averages so to say that the average is 54 minutes necessarily means that there are quite a few that are even less than that not to mention league two where there have been 48 minutes on average where a few games are going to have been longer than that there have been football games that haven't even been played for like a full half which is just ridiculous it's funny isn't it um well i want to ask you if you have a a strong feeling about why you think the time has been going down consistently? Um, 
I think part of it is to do with the fact that there is a widening gap between the top teams and the bottom teams. Um, I don't know, you know, I, I don't watch um, enough of the EFL to know if that's true across all levels, but certainly we true this season the championship with teams like Leicester in the championship. I saw a stat earlier about their wage bill, which is like 60 million more than the team at the bottom. Um, but I think when you mm. think about a team like, for example, Manchester City against a Bournemouth, you can understand why they wouldn't want to sort of go toe-to-toe necessarily. And this is, again, this is sort of since records began. This was in the 11-12 season, so we don't have the stats. And it'll be interesting to see the stats in a time where there was a team as dominant as Manchester United, for example, or Arsenal in their best period, or Chelsea in their best period. But certainly since 11-12, this is the worst it's been. And I don't think that's necessarily completely at odds with the fact that when we talk about how the league's been in the last five, six, seven years, Part of the conversation has always been, have Manchester United slash Liverpool at times, are they sort of the furthest away from the rest of the pack that we've ever seen? Sure, I I think it's a very good point. Um, I like your example of Man City versus Bournemouth. I don't know if you knew this when you said it, but um, in the 10 times that Man City and Bournemouth have met, Man City have won 10 times. Um, Bournemouth have never taken a single point off them in Premier League games. Um, And... Yeah, I think that's that's broadly true. Um, I think think trying to think about it a little bit more. The only other potential reasons I could I could come up with were a, you know, players are being pushed more and more to their like, their physical limits, and I think that a second here or there of respite when the ball goes out for a throw in is probably sought after by a, a lot of players just to take a, a quick breather when they can, uh, and potentially the second one being that. Um, a lot of the time, teams have have slightly more complicated technical setups, and maybe need a little, maybe need a second longer sometimes to compose themselves at a corner because they've got an intricate build-up play routine happening or, or something like that. Um, but I think the main point is is absolutely what you touched on there, which is that the gap is widening, and it doesn't really look like it's slowing down. I think the the only the other big consideration, the only other one that you'd have to sort of take into account is. It is just human nature to, if you get away with something, to just take the piss a little bit more each time. Every time you get a game where you've managed to waste 10 minutes time, if you have enough times you think, well, next time I'll waste 12 minutes time, or next time I'll waste 15 minutes time. And by its very nature, if the referees aren't wise to it, which I would suggest they haven't been until, <laughs> and, and we'll see how, how effective they are with these this sort of suggestion coming in. But so far, certainly, I think everyone's had a game where their team has been chasing a goal and the other team sort of every single time they're lying down on the pitch or kicking balls out to, to touch um, and I think it is just you know necessarily something that people will try and get away with more and more the more they realise the referees aren't wise to it so you know yeah, yeah. Ho- hopefully I played a game on Monday I played a game yesterday at six aside where the, the team did exactly that they went 2-0 up early and then uh, every time they just took that extra second or two um, <laughs> but the, yeah we, we've, we've seen it all the time at all exactly. levels of the game right down to the uh, the not to get too anecdotal about it um, uh, but yeah, and I think I think the other part is maybe um, to to touch on exactly what you just talked about there, which is um, goalkeeper. The amount of time that goalkeepers hold onto the ball, for example, I feel like has been edging up and up every like year on year because mm-hmm. it's just the least enforced rule in football, and so they know they can get away with it, so they continue to do that. Uh, it's just a really easy way to do that. Actually, funny enough, I know you just said not to go too anecdotal, but I'm going to take us right back to an anecdotal space. Uh, I remember certainly when I was a young lad, it was always a thing of like the six second rule for keepers. And there's a slightly yeah, older gentleman. 
who, well, there is now, but not really. And there's the, the reason I know their aura is sort of very laxness is there is a slightly older fan who sits near me at the football who anytime the opposition goalkeeper has the ball we're behind, he'll literally be going out loud, one, two, three, four, five, <laughs> six, seven, just counting up and being like, ref, that was 15 seconds. I've just, referee can't hear him, obviously, but he's, he's making a <laughs> symbolic point. Um, but yeah, an important no, symbolic point. An important symbol. And, and look, maybe he reached someone. Maybe he reached, uh, you know, a member of PG Mole was watching a game as a Magic Oak fan. But no, well, I, Cam, I mean, he he reached you, and now are millions of listeners. <laughs> well, that's true. Um, but no, I, I mean, I think I'm a big fan of this because largely because we've seen it in action at the World Cup, and I think at the World Cup, most games in which I was just a complete neutral, um, other than sort of the England games. I didn't really have a favourite in most games. There were the odd occasion where I'd go, oh, I like this player. But most of the time, I was a true neutral. I think that's the best, sort of, that's the most level head you can have in assessing these rule changes rather than when it goes for or against your team. And I really liked it in the World Cup. Um, that being said, I mean, we've talked about all the stuff we thought was positive. I've sort of come in here bowling saying the PG have made a really good decision. I mean, let's talk about some of the potential points against. I mean, there will be fans who say, if you are a team like, for example, a Bournemouth, that that is part of the game, that why should you have to play toe... And I'm just saying Bournemouth for a reason, sorry, Bournemouth fans, but why should you have to go toe-to-toe with a team like Manchester? Well, why is this not sort of that that football, that sort of wasting time and it's part of the tactics or, you know, really close... Like, some fans will say that, sort of the less... Obviously, for the man cities of this world, they'll all go, yeah, keep the ball and play it on the deck as much as possible. But it'd be like if they sort of started banning long balls as well. Loads of teams, and typically the, sort of the less less able teams would go, well, that's ridiculous. Um, the other one that I saw that was an interesting point was that this could be a bit of a concern for that group of fans that is so often forgotten by the powers that be, uh, the humble match-going fan, uh, in as much as... <laughs> especially for late kickoffs, if you are uh, a fan traveling away or you're a fan traveling to a home game, but you're not local um, and you need to get a train back, all of a sudden, if it's an 8 p.m. kickoff, for example, or, or any sort of late kickoff, and there's now the potential of having 15 minutes added on, it could really mess up travel. You could miss the last train. It's, it's not as easy as, as ABC, which I think, I mean, I, I want to hear your thoughts, but just on that second point, as a match-going fan myself, I definitely get that, and I definitely think that match-going fans are overlooked a lot of the time when these big decisions are made. What I would say is that this, in an ideal world, is one of those situations that's a bit self-solving, in that, hopefully, you would have to think the idea of sort of adding this time on would be that, over time, players would just stop wasting time, because if you start wasting time and you see the referee going, well, the ball's been out of play for 18 seconds there, so we're adding exactly 18 seconds on, eventually players would stop wasting time more and more, and we would still have 90-minute games There would just be being 90 minutes of football played in them. Yeah, that was definitely my my instinct. Um, but you you don't know. I, I think it'll, if that is the case, and if that does... Uh, happen, which I imagine it will to an extent. It won't be immediate. It'll be in in the next year or two to come as people mm. get used to the rules and see the impact of them. Um, I think you're right. Match going fans often get overlooked. I well, that's not really a, uh, it's not really a hot take, is it? Mm. I I think that it's small margins, and I hope that it will not have too great an impact, but. There will be times, yeah, where, where it does mean that people miss a train. Um, and, and that's a shame. I don't know whether or not it's going to come. I mean, the other thing to talk about is um, things like TV um, and, and how how stuff will get put on TV. Because if you've got 15 minutes more on the end of the game, 
Does that mean that you just have 15 minutes less of commentary at the end? Does it mean the games start earlier? Because that would be one way to combat it is that you have potentially 15 minutes less of build-up. You start the, the matches 15 minutes earlier and then the games still end at roughly the same time. Um, yeah, I, I think it would be the other end because there's no way of telling how much added to they just take off the time from the commentary at the end, wouldn't they? But no, it, it, it's a good point. It definitely affect programming and seeing how long it is. I mean, what I would say about both those points is that the idea is, the suggestion is from PG Mole and the EFL and the Premier League is that this sort of new change on uh, time wasting and adding on time is going to come in tandem with much more robust guidelines around cautioning players for time wasting. Now, we'll have to see how that goes because, again, it's one thing for referees to say something, another thing for them to do them. But in theory the two sort of the dual deterrents of a all that time is being added on and b all of a sudden you don't get three or four times where you can waste a bit of time you're getting a yellow card first defense will reduce it onto both sides yeah you would imagine um i think one thing that potentially it would continue to do um time wasting is frustrating your opponent so in that sense maybe there would still be value in it um but that again will be an interesting thing to see how how taxes evolve how how players and managers adjust to new things um, and we might well see fun new tactics that come out of it because if you can't time waste by kicking the ball off the pitch you've got to find a different way to time waste I think the 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 idea that time wasting will kind of stop or people will stop trying it is obviously not the case it'll be that they'll have to find different ways to do it while while having the ball on the pitch Absolutely, um, but but I think that's a lot less egregious. Like I think, I mean, we've all you know been been in the game and sort of had the way way when they're sort of you've got two players or three players part like playing easy passes to each other, obviously no intent to progress the ball and or, or someone sort of taking the ball to the corner or or you know anything like that that is still time wasting. But it's a lot less in my mind anyway egregious than the ball has gone out of play because a player is lying down or a player has feigned an injury and they've rolled back onto the pitch because they know that play can't restart. That is not at least there is football happening in the former kind of time wasting and it can even be it's very frustrating if it happens against you but it can be quite amusing to watch either as a fan of the team doing it or as a neutral so i think that's who this rule changes for i think there will obviously still be ways to time waste and as you say there might be some amusing new ways to do it um but i think anything that can stamp out the really worst kind of time wasting that sort of yeah lying down on the pitch Mm. or pretending to be injured is is good it's it's one of those things isn't it if it's in if it's in the game, you can use it, and uh, in some ways, you can make the point that a good manager is someone who uses every tool in the arsenal. Um, so I don't don't look down on time wasting. It can obviously be annoying when you're um, the one on the receiving end, but at the same time, if it's your team that's doing it, you probably don't really care. So in that sense, it's pretty neutral. Um, one thing that I do think, me putting my cynical hat on, is that. I don't think this rule is necessarily about the fans. I wonder if this rule is about big clubs in the same way that VAR and, you know, the, the, the leveling out of, of kind of decisions that get made by referees in theory um, does very slightly marginally benefit the big clubs more than it benefits the small clubs. We kind of talked about the fact that we maybe didn't want to see VAR in the FA Cup because we still wanted to have the great upset moments. Mm. And I think that this is the same. Um, you know, this cuts the margin of of potential for beating a bigger team. 
because it allows for more, or it demands that more time is spent with the ball in play, which will give the the, the bigger teams like Man City against uh, Bournemouth, if you if you like. Um, <laughs> I'm really, really getting more... a hammering this this part of this episode, <laughs> Bournemouth. <laughs> Um, it just gives them more time, and so I I hope that we'll still see as many upsets as we've seen. Because I can fully imagine, you know, imagine if um, you know you're you're a, you're a team lower down in the table and you go one 0 up against Man City or Arsenal or Liverpool, and and you're holding out and you scored an early goal and you're holding out and you're knackered. And it gets to the 89th minute and you see that that thing go up and it's like 12, twelve more minutes of extra time and your head would drop. How could it not? Yeah, and, and, um, and, and, and you are and right. Again, it... I think you'd, you'd have a reaction. Obviously, players would get more used to the fact that that it's not over at ninety minutes. You're not just going to get one or two minutes. You're getting ten. Um, it's it's true. That, it's it's another way in which it favours those bigger teams because bigger teams tend to have deeper benches um, in terms of quality. So a team that can start hauling players off at you know ninety plus five <laughs> and go, well, we've got another ten minutes to play, so let's bring on a few like Premier League level players versus some of the teams that are a bit like, oh Christ, we've got a few kids or we've got a few guys who aren't quite at the level uh, are going to be at a bit of a disadvantage. I think it'll definitely lead to exactly. some some interesting moments next season, though. I will be very interested to see whether or not, on average, there are fewer upsets in the, the following season, the co- the season coming up, um, compared to last season, the season before, etc. Um, I suppose it depends how you define... No, my expectation is probably. I suppose it depends how you define upsets, because we will almost certainly, just by the very nature of the rule, have a lot more goals scored in injury time. So if you call those upsets, it's sort of losses that turn into draws or draws that turn into wins by goals scored now. We're almost certain to have a larger proportion of those next season, so maybe we'll even have more upsets. That's true. You never know. Let's move next on to what I would call the laziest comparison we've seen coming out of the media uh, this past week. Uh, Rasmus Hoyland, the oldie Haaland, um, so named because he's a striker, he's blonde, he's from a Nordic country, um, and their names sound kind of similar, but not a whole lot else. Um, what do you think about the signing by Manchester United? And do you think that they've got value for money in spending up to 85 million euros on him? Well, I can't help but feel like 85 million is a a lot of money. Um especially for a player that has I would say he's still, you know, he's still pretty young. Mm. He's he's 20 at the moment. Um he has done well for Atlanta, but that's a very specific um, you know, structured team and he's struggled at other places um such as the Danish league that he moved from. Um, so, um, you know, we'll see. I think, um, obviously, I guess the only the only other thing that you'd probably uh, attribute to him as, as being similar to Haaland is that he's also left-footed. He also hits the ball pretty hard. Um, and he also does like goals. But, yeah, but beyond that, I think uh, it does seem like the, the comparisons fall slightly short. Um, I don't know whether or not the comparison favours... Man United fans or Man City fans. I feel like if I was a Man City fan, I'd be more eager to kind of laugh at the the budget version, like the you know, like the Tesco own brand version of um of Haaland. Um like we we've got Haaland at home. Um mm. but yeah, it's you know it's it's always exciting to see big clubs sign different types of players. And I think he is a slightly different type of player. Um Atlanta are obviously quite a unique team in the way that they set up. And 
I think we're still seeing the development of this Ten, ten Hag's um, Manchester United side. And we've talked a lot about how we're excited by his tactics and how he's building something there. And presumably this could well be part of that. Oh, and he's quite tall as well, isn't he? Yeah, six foot three. I mean, we're still seeing the the development of Ten Hag. We're also going to see the development of of Rasmus Hoyland. I mean, you mentioned there that he maybe struggled a bit back in his time in Denmark at Copenhagen, but I mean, then he was about eighteen years old, I think, starting or, or seventeen even. So you know, we we look at a player who's twenty now, and because we have some freaks in the in the game, like for example the Harlands and the, and a lot of the sort of the other young, the the Sackers, the Fodens we sort of look at someone who's 20 or 21 and we go, ah, okay, well, they should be Premier League ready. Hoyland could still be a top player. And, and I saw a lot of United fans obviously defending it by going, I mean, they, they were sort of saying this is quite a harmful comparison because unlike the sort of freak robot who came in and immediately hit the ground running, Hoyland probably won't. Hoyland will, it'll be a great first season for him probably if he gets 10 goals and he got nine goals in the league last season for Atlanta. But if he comes in, you know, he's not, he's not an investment that they're buying and paying that much for because they're expecting him to hit the ground running. They're paying that for him because he's shown a lot of promise for a 20-year-old. They've probably overpaid, but that is just United tax. They've sort of had a, lo- a long back, as they always do, they had a long back and forth with the club. They were like, we want to offer this. The club went, no, you're United, you'll pay it full price eventually. They paid full price <laughs> eventually. Uh, and they got this guy. And I think, you know, people making the point that like it took Wayne Rooney three seasons to have a twenty goal season for Manchester United, um, for example. So Hoyland may not That's hit the ground true. running, but that doesn't mean he's not a really interesting acquisition. And have they ever paid for him? Probably, but it doesn't mean it's not still a potentially good signing down the line. Yeah, I I definitely agree with everything you've just said. Um, he could well be. It's just hard because we've got to recalibrate our brains, and I think I'm still doing that. Because to me, seventy-two million still just feels like a lot of money, and it probably shouldn't anymore. <laughs> it's funny you talk about recalibrating brains. I was talking to uh, a friend today who is not really a football fan, and it's sort of like is one of those football fans who he'll watch like during the World Cup, and he sort of knows roughly like to to put into perspective how much of a football fan he is. I was telling him about Kylian Mbappe, and he was like, "Oh, who's that guy?" And he knew who he was when I showed him a picture, but he didn't immediately know who Kylian Mbappe was. Um, Gosh. Because yeah, I know, that's right? like under rock levels of of, uh, ig- of like ignoring football. <laughs> it's a, it's a, they're living in a different world, but it was because he was asking me about um, some of the like Saudi stuff, and he was oh, I've heard about all these footballers going to, and I was ex- I was walking him through like some of the details around the Mbappe deal, and he was uh, honestly, I mean, it, it's crazy to us, and we sort of already know this, but it, it was like his I was speaking a different language to him when I was saying like, oh, he'd be earning like thirteen million euros a week, and he was like. What? What he, he like couldn't? He was like, I, "You must be lying." And I was like showing him on my phone all these different things. He was like, "I don't understand how this is real." <laughs> so, so sure, I think we've <laughs> recalibrated our brains to an extent to look at some of these things and go, "Oh well, you know, footballer does this," and someone who's not into football at all or not even really into sport at all. I was telling them that, and they were like, "This is you're telling me that it's normal?" Because <laughs> I, I, in it, I went, "Oh yeah, like for comparison, like the Premier League is like the most money like league in the world. Someone like Kevin De Bruyne earns three hundred and fifty k a week," and he was like, "He earns what?" And I was like, "Oh no, no, but like this guy called Kareem <laughs> Benzema was earning eight times that," and he was like, "I don't, like, I can't." It's it's funny, isn't it? The, the 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 best thing that I've seen so far, I don't know if you saw, saw this, was a tweet from, I think it was one of the NBA's official accounts, talking about Mbappe's one-year salary compared to LeBron's all-time earnings. Yeah. And then they just put, football money is wild. And someone responded saying, you shocked them so much they called it by the right name. <laughs> that's great. That's so true as well. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, um, which which cracked me up. But, but yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, it's spooky. 
but this this is where we've got to this summer where I think it's 70 million euros up top. So that's 64 million pounds, I think. So that sounds like slightly less money. People obviously, when it comes to different agendas, I said up to 85 million euros, whereas you could also say it's 64 million pounds, which seems a little bit more palatable for a, for a player like him. Um, and it could be a case. We don't know what those add-ons are. They could all be ridiculous add-ons. But yeah, it seems like a lot of money for a guy who scored nine league goals last season. Um, but it's it's a big investment and yet again they're sort of they're showing that they trust Ten Hag to sort of build up that squad very much so and 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 Ten Hag has worked with with many Danes in the past and to mm. great effect he certainly has also we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the other signing that Manchester United have made over the last week uh, that being Andre Onana I don't think we mentioned that mm. last week but he has come in um already has sort of divided a fair few people because he's one of those keepers who's really good with his feet, uh, which much like sort of someone like a, a Trent defender, people go, well, he's good with his feet, but can he save the goals? And <laughs> there's a case to be made uh, based on just some of the early preseason stuff I've, I've seen that he sort of pulled his, if you only get so many points to allocate, he's put a load of them in the ball playing stuff, which means he's going to get loads of really, really exciting like setups and sort of like putting it deep and maybe even an assist or two, uh, but might throw some over his shoulder. So I suppose that's a, uh, I suppose that's a, uh, you know, the, the sort of the back and forth, even someone like Edison, for example, has yeah. thrown some over his shoulder in the past, but he's great with his feet. So maybe you've just got to pick that slider. Uh, and Edison continues to be, uh, Man City's number one shot stopper. So Absolutely. there's clearly value uh, in in that um, offering. And I've already seen some early stuff, as I'm sure you have, about how Onana's signing could well transform the way that Man, Man United build up from the back, um, the way that they progress the ball up the pitch, having another outlet. Um, and so it could well be that his value is, is, is pretty high. Um, that being said, I think... People who only see him as being a a keeper that is good with his feet, I think, are not quite seeing the full picture. I do think he's still a pretty darn good goalkeeper, um, even if shot stopping isn't his his special source. Hmm. No, I, I do agree, and uh, he's a he's a quality keeper. He's just playing the Champions League final for for Christ's sake. Uh, he's a quality keeper as well, but I think you know people are always sensationalists, Absolutely. aren't they? If he if he makes a great pass, it's oh he's a ball playing goalkeeper. He's amazing. If he makes one sort of error, it's oh he's an absolute clanger and he's got chocolate wrists. Um, so you know how it is. Um, let's move on from United though. Let's move on to the continuation of the Harry Kane saga. Um, interesting here because we're starting to get a little bit more of a concrete idea on what Tottenham are after uh, and whether that's even something that they seriously expect to get or if that's sort of their nominal price they've slapped on him. We talked a few weeks back about sort of this hypothetical 110 million uh, figure. Uh, and that's what Bayern made in their third offer, although it was 110 million euros, which is about 94 million pounds. Um, and Spurs rejected that immediately. Uh, apparently, Spurs are looking, according to David Ornstein, for about 25 million pounds more to be happy to sell, which means they value Kane at around 120 million pounds. Um, I think in any normal year, and we've had this uh, discussion previously, so we can sort of chop it short, but I just want to sort of frame it within the context of having an actual figure now. 120 million, or I should say anything less than 120 million, 115 million, for example, uh, seems like Mm. a fair price for Harry Kane in a normal year. But the man turned 30 last week, and he's got one year left on his contract. If they don't sell him for that amount of money... He will leave on a free next season unless Daniel Levy pulls another bamboozle on Charlie Kane. Are they mad to be turning down some of these offers? I think no, 
but I think that's because they expect that Bayern will continue to make further offers. I think in the same way that, you know, you're negotiating and you go, we want at least £25 million more, and then Bayern go, okay, how about €120 million? Euros? And you're like, no, we, do you know what I mean? Like, you, you haggle, you haggle. Um, and I, I feel like that's probably what's what's going on here. Um, but it's so hard to say. I... I personally feel like it's it's a drop of a coin. It's either or. Um, because I think the value that he brings is massive. I think the potential that you get him to sign a contract is not zero. And it's, it's, it's a, definitely not zero. And I think that there's a chance that you, you could still push for more money and, and get it. So, you know, probably with the proviso that uh, the uh, worst comes to worst, there might well be some sort of Saudi Arabian team that, that comes out of the woodwork and offers 200 million that honestly could be the case actually that might be uh, again we, we talked about it in the past sorry to interrupt um yeah the fact that it's all public now and spurs are saying no we want 25 million pounds that's so specific um you know and it's public and anyone looking at that can go oh so i could get harry kane for 120 million pounds well then it's a great point that for some reason I hadn't really thought, and it's funny because the, the, they all sort of occur in different spheres, but it's like last week when the Mbappe and the Saudi conversations came together. Maybe this will be the next thing. Maybe Al-Halal in their failed pursuit of Mbappe and perhaps also Victor Osman, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, will now go, you know what? Let's go for Harry Kane, the sort of the captain and the best player for the footballing nation and one of the places we want to get a foothold in. Um, yeah, let's go for let's go for Big Harry. Oh yeah, actually, that's a that's a good bit of uh, good bit of forecasting, and I'm gonna try and publish this episode as soon as possible because now that you've said it, I think it will happen, and I want to make sure you've predicted it. Yeah, well, I mean, again, it would be quite the quite the boon for um, for for a Saudi Arabian side to pick him up. Um, just to mention uh, a very small aside, but I was looking at um, the top transfers this window, um, and. There is only one team that um, I think as of very recently, it's now become in the top 21. But when I first looked at it, it was in the top 20. There's only one team that has has three signings in the top 20 most expensive signings this window. And that is Al-Halal. Wow. There you go. That's uh, that's that's quite something. Um Let's move on to a bit of the useless trivia, because um, I'm keen to get into some of the Women's World Cup highlights, uh, and mm. we've got a little break before then. Uh, I've got a bit of uh, what has turned into some some sort of topical useless trivia this week, because we've been talking about match-going fans uh, and the woes and the lack of concern for them. Uh, I want to talk about the Football League match with the smallest ever recorded attendance, uh, the least amount okay. of match-going fans. Um, because, funnily enough... Although it was only uh, attended by 469 fans, it took place in the biggest stadium to ever host league football. It was the Thames AFC versus Luton Town. uh, Thames Thames AFC versus Luton Town at the West Ham Stadium. It didn't have anything to do with West Ham United. It was a Speedway and Greyhound Stadium in West Ham, and it had 120,000 capacity. Uh, The match played on December 6th of 1930. It finished a 1-0 win for Thames AFC. So 469 people were spread across a a 120,000 capacity stadium. Wow, that's... (laughs) That's not a lot. But isn't that funny? Smallest ever recorded attendance, largest ever stadium to host a a uh, football league game. You almost couldn't make it up. 
What's funny as well yeah. is that if you take that as like a proportion, that's a record that will surely never be beaten. Almost certainly not, no. So, so yeah, that's what I've got for you this week. That's brilliant. Um, well, I um, also have a, a small trip down memory lane, which was I was looking at some some records this uh, this week, and one that caught my eye, uh, which I don't know if you've come across before, was the so-called dirtiest game in football history, um, which was the game that um, the referee gave out the most red cards uh, during. Would you like to to wager a guess as to how many it was? Oh God, it's gonna like twelve, maybe. What if I told you it was thirty six? <laughs> <laughs> did this happen Back in South in... America by any chance? <laughs> it did. And would yeah, you like course. to guess the country? Uh, I'm gonna say Argentina. It is Argentina. There you go. There you go. <laughs> it is in the in the fifth division uh, in Argentina in 2011. A match between Clay Pole and Victoriano Arenas um, got extremely um, hot and ended up in a, a massive brawl where every single player on the pitch got kicked off and 14 other people, including including subs and coaches, were all sent off um, during the match, uh, which I, I think is the only time that I've ever heard that was as wild as that, but uh, yeah, com- completely, um, completely mad. Some red cards even had to be given after all of the fighting was done inside the locker rooms afterwards because there just weren't enough time to give out um, enough red cards during. Um, but uh, yeah, there you go. 2011, 36 red cards, one game. Honestly, that's uh, that's uh, something that can only happen in Argentina. Um, let's talk a little <laughs> bit about the Women's World Cup. Um, some really interesting highlights. The group stages are coming to an end. So we've had a few people knocked out. We've had a few people go through. Uh, I think there's three groups left to conclude. Um, obviously, England's group concluded today uh, with an absolutely dominant display against China. The first two games for England, not so hot. Mm-hmm. Um, just 1-0 wins. And then this today, uh, a 6-1 win uh, against China. And Lauren James, I mean, she was already uh, sort of on the world stage. So I'm not going to say she's announced herself, but she's announced herself as being sort of on that next level. Absolutely different gravy. Scored the goal, obviously, in the last game. And in this game, got three assists, two goals. Got a goal disallowed that probably shouldn't have been disallowed. Great goals as well. Lovely assists. Um, yeah, just, just different gravy. And it's funny because... There has been a couple of things. So Lauren James, for those who don't know, is obviously Reese James's sister. Um, mm-hmm. And as a result, she often gets mentioned uh, in the English media as Reese James's sister. And there are a few people sort of going, how good does she have to get for <laughs> Reese James to start being called Lauren James's sister? And I would suggest not with Reese James's injury record, not that <laughs> not that much better. <laughs> well, I mean, um, he's also not, well, he's he's also very supportive of her. And he's, he's very come supportive out and said her, yeah. that he thinks that she's the best women's player in the world and has, you know, better skills than, than some Premier League players. So, you know, I don't think he's doing anything to to stoke the fire either. No, no, he's never up. Did you cool, see Mishi Batshuayi cool today? No, what did he say? <laughs> so Reese James made that comment where he was like, my sister's the best player in the world. She's going to be for the next 10, 15 years. She's got better technique than some Premier League players. And after she scored yeah. some of those goals today, Mishi Batshuayi was like, she finishes better than mine, bro. I see what you're saying. <laughs> Honestly, Mishi Bajwai on social media is actually fantastic. He's great, um, isn't he? 
yeah, it's uh, it's incredible. Um, it's exciting to see as well because I think that while we've obviously had a really good side and a lot of a lot of exciting players, we've not had a megastar in, in my mind yet. Um, you know, along the lines of um, you know some American players, Brazilian players, French players, and this could well be her. She could be it. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because at, at the start of the tournament, we talked about how you know, the injury crisis that England had was obviously really bad, but it could see some breakout stars coming through. Uh, and obviously, Lauren James, again, is not a breakout star. She's been a top player for long before the Euros, but didn't get to play in that in that sort of Lioness team that, that won the Euros. And now, as a result of various different things, including injuries, is now playing in that team and is proving herself to be one of the stars. So, you know, amazing to see her getting this this opportunity to show how good she is um and obviously she's only 21 as well so it's really really exciting to see someone do that well when there's clearly so much of their career ahead of them yeah absolutely um no she's she's definitely been on the on the radar um for for long before this tournament started and um i think uh this season she got the young player of the year award um at the women's football awards so you know she was already on the radar as as one of the the most exciting young talents but yeah you're right um this is what injuries you know can can lead to um, well, she, 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 she probably exciting. would have come on the squad but you, you can see how especially with a team that's just won something and we see it all the time in football how it could be easy to despite how good she is not play her over one of the, the girls that was actually in the winning team um and so maybe this has sort of eased her pathway to the, the starting 11 um which is not to denigrate her ability, but it just maybe has helped out. And she's <laughs> she's now never going to be taken out of that team. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, long, long may it continue. Um, and long may the Lionesses run continue. Um, kind of does feel like, again, uh, I know we do this every time England's in a, <laughs> in a footballing international competition, but could this be the year? Well, we're only just out of the group stages. Let's wait until we get at least to the, the quarters before we start getting too excited. Um, sure. Some of the other really exciting ones. So group stages coming to an end. The one that you mentioned, uh, I think last week or the week before, Japan versus Spain, um, sort of being mm. like two of the two of the really exciting sides. And they are two of the exciting sides, both, uh, f- both through. But Japan absolutely <laughs> destroying Spain 4-0. Um, it's an absolute rout, uh, which is... Really interesting to see. It's especially interesting, I mean, you could say the same for England, but when a women's team starts doing these sort of things that the men's team doesn't necessarily do, you look at, obviously, as a historically primarily men's football fan myself and most people, um, mm-hmm. well, I wouldn't say most people, a lot of people are for women's football fans just because they fell in love with women's football, but I'm coming into women's football having been a men's football first, so you often look at teams through mm-hmm. the lens of Japan beating Spain, that would never happen in men's football, although it nearly did happen in Qatar, but I digress. So, so it's all, all that more <laughs> all that more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Japan looking like the, well, some of the, one of the most exciting teams early doors um and one of the only teams that won all three games in their group stage i want to say indeed and and england as well of course uh i mean japan are are no slouches they are ranked 11th spain are ranked sixth though so for them to put four past them is really impressive um I mean, I do want to talk about They're rankings a little bit because right one of the time. really exciting things about this tournament um, is that it's been quite a turbulent tournament for some of those at the top so far. Um, the US women's national team, who are obviously ranked first and who are considered to be sort of the best team around, uh, just barely scraped through with a nil-nil against Portugal uh, today to get through their group, or, or I should say yesterday, early this morning, depending on where you are. Um, 
and they were sort of getting absolutely torn to shreds by Carly Lloyd because their players were so sort of celebrating. She was like, they shouldn't be celebrating. They're lucky they're not on the plane home. They've just got through because they got lucky. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's interesting that, you know, US aren't doing as well as people think. Germany, who are the second second ranked team, got absolutely rocked by Colombia in the 97th minute. Um, and so now may need a result in the final game to progress. Uh, and Canada, who are the seventh ranked team and were sort of tipped by many to be one of the dark horses of the tournament, have been completely knocked out. So it's interesting. It's always the best thing about tournament football when this happens, when you see some of the lower down teams and the teams people don't expect to do well progressing uh, and some of the teams that people sort of had bolted on to reach the the quarters, the semis, the finals uh, are getting knocked out or are maybe having a little bit of a harder time getting through than people expected. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, uh, did you mention Brazil there as well? Uh, I didn't. I did not. Yeah, so Brazil currently are third in their group. Um, and need to beat Jamaica to go through. Um, Jamaica having already managed to draw nil-nil with France um, and then beat Panama. Um, Brazil, obviously, in the top 10. I think they're ranked 8th at the moment. Jamaica ranked 43rd. Um, but currently, if Brazil don't don't manage to outright win that game, Jamaica will go through and Brazil will go out. So, as you say, yeah, it's exciting. Mm, yeah, but yeah, obviously, yeah, Brazil, another another really sort of like renowned team, one of the sort of strongest women's teams, and yeah, could, could go. So this this is what we love. We love the jeopardy. We love the permutations. We love the. Oh. So this is it's a, it's a great tournament so far. And what I will say is, some of the games, and I think this is probably deliberate, but some of the games towards the back end of this have been a bit later in the day. So the England game today, for example, I was sort of bemoaning last week, as you recall, those sort of earlier times that make it a little bit trickier to for catch sure, up. Yeah. But the England game today, uh, as well as the the other Demahati were both Demahati were both at midday for UK time, which was perfect. Um, that sort of Brazil Jamaica game, which you mentioned, which I hadn't really conned onto that entirely, but absolutely we'll be watching that tomorrow at the very agreeable time of eleven a.m. That'll be a second monitor <laughs> is has a minimized version of the game, while oh, my main monitor has absolutely. work on it. <laughs> Job. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good thing that no one at your workplace listens to this podcast, isn't it? <laughs> That's my knowledge. Um, yeah, so so yeah, so some great stuff so far in the, in the Women's World Cup. And yeah, interesting. I mean, again, we sort of talk about, you know, at the start of this episode, things being trialed out in World Cups before, before being brought down. And I think that the overarching mood towards an expanded World Cup format has been pretty negative, And I would agree with that broadly, but at least in this instance, and it's early doors, but it's it's given some interesting moments and we have seen that with all these sort of expanded teams it's not necessarily a, a free-for-all for the the quote-unquote big teams yeah you're right and i think that's that's probably the, the final point to end on which is that um you know i think the women's game has at times been criticized for uh, flat track bullies you know the, the biggest international size just being so dominant and we have seen that at times in terms of you know the amount of shots that someone like japan has has put um versus someone like costa rica on goal um, but at the same time, we are now starting to see more upsets. We are now starting to see more competition across this this bigger tournament, and that's exciting. And it's a real sign of the ma- the maturation of of the women's game. Um, so it's only going to lead to to more exciting tournaments, more exciting matchups and games um, and upsets. It's a great point. It's a great point. Uh, and let's let's move on uh, there to uh, Chelsea. Let's talk a little bit about Chelsea. 
uh, back to the men's team, not about Lauren James. Um, I had a whole thing prepared, a whole diatribe prepared about Chelsea's signing mm-hmm. of uh, Axel Dezazi, Um thinking, oh, you know, what, what does this do for the pecking order? They're trying to keep Levi Colwell, who's such a great player. Why are they making these signings? This is classic Chelsea of old. You know, they've got these young players coming through. They sign them, da da da. They're so ridiculous. And then Levi Colwell agreed a six-year extension after they signed Desazi. So, but that's uh, still classic. That's still classic Chelsea. I think. I feel like, you know, it always seems baffling that some of their young players are still signing contracts, but they keep doing it, even when their replacements or people that will immediately go above them in the pecking order, even just because you've spent forty million pounds on them, um, uh, those signings are made. But they still seem to be like, okay, yeah, I'll stay here until twenty thirty-five. Yeah, you're right, and it might rob Chelsea fans might still not see Levi Colwell that much because they might have you know, some of the signings in the head of him. I would think that maybe this new contract would mean that they are putting him central plans, but who knows what the, what goes on at Chelsea HQ? At least the but thing this they... is, um, sorry, go on. Well, no, I was going to say, even if they don't, they have avoided the, the sort of worst possible outcome, which is him going to Liverpool or Brighton even, and, you know, playing really well and finishing those teams finishing above Chelsea largely as a result of that. So if nothing else, they might not see him play, but Chelsea fans can at least be relieved they won't see him play somewhere else. That's that's true. And I think I think in that in that regard, it's pretty it's pretty standard practice for Chelsea to just tie up their, their players in long contracts. And I think um, I might be wrong, but I think exactly the same thing happened um, with something like um, Mark Mark Gahey before he went on loan to Swansea. That the year before he then was signed permanently by Crystal Palace, um, they do tend to uh, tie players down. And I almost wonder if you almost do wonder from the outside looking in whether or not they kind of hold them over the hot coals a little bit, and they go, you know, we're not gonna. You know, we obviously want you to be going to the best club you can possible for for your loans, for for your development. But we want you to be cooperative. Obviously, we want to work with you. And why aren't you signing this new contract? And cynical part of me, again, does does worry that maybe these young players are taken advantage of because it does really seem to happen in a, in a very formulaic manner. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if Levi Colwell does now go off on loan and potentially never touches the first team again. Um, it's seen it happen too many times, which would be a shame because he does. From what we've seen, uh, you know, brief stints at the senior level, he does look like he could grow into a top player. And you can only help but feel that he might. I mean, I was going to say there's lots of players. I was looking funny enough at Josh McEachern's Wikipedia page <laughs> over the weekend, uh, and obviously as a throwback. I know, but he was obviously sort of tips to be this massive superstar and then never really got the the first team play for Chelsea to, to develop there. So I was going to say, you know, players leave Chelsea and they do that. But then for every Josh McEachern, well, not every Josh McEachern, but for every 10 Josh McEacherns, there's a Kevin De Bruyne. So maybe Colwell will leave Chelsea and it'll it'll sort of eventually culminate in him going to Man City in 10 years, <laughs> five years, whatever. Who knows? But I mean, I think um, someone like Ruben Loftus-Cheek is a great example. I think he... He signed like a five-year contract back in 2016. And then the, the next year he was sent on loan to Crystal Palace. And then in 2019, he signed another five-year contract. And then the season after, he's, he'd been sent on loan to Fulham. Um, so I feel like at this point, Chelsea are only keeping Ruben Loftus-Cheek around as sort of that that sort of aspirational goal for young talents. <laughs> They're like, don't he's worry. Gone. He's gone, bro. 
Oh yeah, of course he went to he, Milan. He signed of for course, Milan. of course he went yeah. to Milan. So they're not even anymore. But I mean, last season, like <laughs> he was sort of playing the odd go. They're maybe only keeping around as an aspirational sign for young players. But yeah, of course I forgot that he. Um, yeah, he's he's joined up. Actually, funnily enough, um, there's a few players talking about there. Christian Pulisic, obviously, being another one. But Milan have sort of they've done a Gareth Bale in in miniature. Um, with uh, with Sandro Tonali, and they've sort of signed a whole host of players and sort of done quite well. And Milan fans have sort of gone from being quite upset that Tonali's left to being like qu- quite excited about the new season because they've invested that money quite well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's looking exciting. Um, they're growing. It's it's a real roll of the dice. You could be a Napoli. You could be uh, a, a Spurs, as you just mentioned there, um, and really struggle from from the four or five signings that you make with money from, from selling one key player. Um, it's it's always a bit of a roll of the dice, isn't it? It really is. Back to Chelsea, though. Quick detour to Milan, um, and I'm sure we'll check it later to see if they are, as you say, Napoli 2.0 or, or Spurs 2.0 with this sort of sell a big player and invest all the pieces wisely. Um, signed Desarzi, signed a new deal for, for Levi Colwell. Two bits of good news for Chelsea. Bit of bad news for Chelsea. Their bid of £80 million, pounds, I think it was £80 million, pounds, I've written euros, but I think it was pounds, uh, for Moises Caicedo was instantly rejected. <laughs> Apparently instantly rejected on email, which is it's quite funny because obviously okay. that is probably how the majority of these things happen. But it's it, in my head, it's just funny to imagine <laughs> them being like, we would like to offer this. <laughs> and I'm just going to be like, no, thank you. Yeah, that's, that's not going to work for us. Hey, fair play. Fair play. Um, I think uh, you've got to know what your players are worth, and I think you probably could get a little bit more for Casado, especially when it's Chelsea. It, it, yes, and I do agree with that. I do think that you <laughs> Chelsea will obviously eventually pay more, as will you, you know your Uniteds, and it is worth squeezing them. It is just insane that we've got to this point where Brighton's like overall turnover and overall profit. I can't remember which number it was, but Brighton's sort of. I think it was their overall. Prof- it might not be. Might have been their overall turnover was something like 192 million pounds last year, and so the fact that they're turning down something that's like nearly half that for one player is absurd. I mean, wh- whether I've got that number right or, or wrong, the fact that a club like Brighton historically, I mean, obviously now sort of pushing on and in the in the Europa League and and looking to big things, the fact that hit club that's sort of historically been well, historically been the championship side and then until recently been sort of lower down the league side and only now is tasting a bit of greatness can even afford to consider the idea of turning down 80 million and not do, a, you know, Milan Tonali type of thing is, is really interesting and, and maybe speaks about, you know, we talked about how this gap is widening but maybe it's not a gap from the very, very top. It's sort of a gap of that, that top cabal and Brighton sort of think if I can just hang on long enough and join that top cabal, I can sort of, you know, keep, you know, the rising tide will, will raise my ships um, but then again, look how it worked out for Leicester. That's true. Um, there is also quite a funny thing about Chelsea and Caicedo, which um, I don't know if you've you've seen this at all, but um, a couple of, I think it was yeah, very recently, uh, Chelsea have signed um, a Ren midfielder by the name of Leslie Ugo Chukwu. Have you come mm. across this? Yeah, yeah I, I saw um, that. That was confirmed yesterday, but there was they'd agreed I terms like a was, week ago or something. I think it was around yesterday, yeah. And there was um, there was some some initial stuff about how um, you know Chelsea were playing four D chess. Todd Bowley was was a genius, and instead of signing um, Brighton's Caicedo, had gone straight to the source and signed the player that they were aiming to replace Caicedo with. Um, and then I've I've then since read something else, and and these uh, these bids 
would seem to confirm that that Chelsea might have actually shot themselves in the foot by accidentally signing the player that, that Brighton were going to replace Kaiseido with, so now they don't want to sell him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the other end of that sword, isn't it? It's like... I mean, it imagine might work out how, pretty well. They, they might scatter- have got a- imagine having such a scattergun approach to, to transfers that you, you accidentally sign players replacements while trying to sign them as well. <laughs> uh, look, it, it might be one of those things where by complete chance it actually ends up really well and Chelsea have spent a lot less money for someone who is obviously at the moment like less good than Caicedo but might mature into a top player in time. But yeah, it is funny. Knowing what we know about Chelsea, I can only imagine it'll be the other way around where now Brian will be like, well, no. That was our idea, so <laughs> that, that was our plan to replace Kaiseido. So now we're not going to sell him. You hope so. Part of me hopes hopes that that happens. Um, but you know, who knows what goes on in, in Chelsea's corridors? Could well be another uh, scandal of um, like in the, similar to was it Frank Lampard and, and Bielsa with the uh, the Spygate? Yeah. Could, could be another Spygate. Chelsea have managed to hijack Brighton's scouting system. Um, who knows? Well, let me ask you this, just back on Caicedo. We know that Chelsea are obviously going to bid again and again and again. It's just what they've been doing recently. Um, but, is I mean, should they? At, at £80 million, Caicedo is obviously a brilliant player. He's 21. He's only going to get better. But he's only had, really, a season and a bit at the top level. Should they continue going for him? Are we not getting to a point now? Like It seems like the concept of walking away from a deal just no longer exists at the big club. But should it maybe? Is 80 million for Caicedo, you know, is that as high as they should go? And once that's not possible, just go, okay, well, look, we tried. Thanks very much, but we're off. I think it's a tricky question to answer immediately because I'd have to look at who the other options are. I think, you know, whether or not... Oh, do they do they need another midfielder? I think well, they've, they've just got Le- Leslie Ugo Chukwu. <laughs> so They've obviously just got, um, yeah, a new player in. Um, but they have let Jorginho go um, recently. They've let um, Kovacic go, of course. Um, but then they've got players like Fernandez um, and things like that. So I think and, and Chukwameka, who who's had, who's looked pretty good so far. Conor Gallagher could get a little bit more game time. I I personally um, think that Pochettino is a strong enough manager that. Chelsea probably don't need to sign someone like Caicedo, especially if Brighton are not inclined to play ball. Um, I think that Pochettino did a pretty good job of of kind of encouraging young players to come up through the ranks while he was Spurs manager. Um, I, I don't know as much about how he treated the kind of PSG, um, but yeah, I think they probably don't need another player. I don't think what so. Do and, think? And, 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 you, and you talk about all these departures, and it's, it, it's true, they've let a lot of players go, but they kind of had to. This was a Chelsea team that we were talking about last season that the dressing room was literally overcrowded. <laughs> it wasn't just sort of metaphorically overcrowded. People were sort of sitting outside and in sort of corridors or whatever to get changed. They needed to start jettisoning, jettisoning some players, um, and it's not like they've not had any new imports. So I think for Caicedo, for £80 million, I think that's right at the limit. I think anything beyond that, you, you should just go... If you're Chelsea, you know what? That's that's a bit too much, and we'll come back next summer and see if he's more more amenable uh, when he's got a year left, one year left, one year less left on his contract because obviously just signed a new one. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, to continue going up and up and up is is just because because Brighton are just going to ask for a hundred million, aren't they? And I just think that's too much. But a hundred million, I, I... although 
you know, if if the going rate at the moment for um, Hoyland is is eighty million or eighty million plus, then it's again it's so hard to be com- comparative um, in, in today's market. It, it um, is, but I mean, I think, I, I think 100 Kaisado, million. Kaiseido for the same amount of money as Hoyland looks like good business. I, I think like 100 million was too, but uh, you I mean, Hoyland, as we mentioned, was sort of 64 million pounds plus add-ons up to 85 million euros. But I mean, I, th- I think 100 million was too much for Declan Rice. And Declan Rice is a guy who's played at the top level for club and country for like four or five years and is just sort of, you know, taken his club that's otherwise in loads of trouble to a European trophy. Um, and I still think 100 million was too much for him. It's definitely too much for Moise Casino, who is a brilliant, talented prospect, but has had one and a half seasons of Premier League football. Yeah, no, I, I, I fully hear you. Um, I would probably lean on the side of, of not signing Caicedo. But also, I think Brighton are a tricky team because they have a very, again, they've got quite a specific system and I think they've got quite rigid formations and more rigid than a lot of the, um, than a lot of the, um, like bigger teams like Chelsea. And sometimes you get players that, that don't really work in, in different systems, like potentially someone like Kukurea, who looked great at Brighton, hasn't been as, as great for Chelsea. No, real shame that as well, because when he came over to Brighton, I'd sort of seen him play a bit in La Liga, and I thought, oh, this guy's absolute, you know, worldy. And then he, I sort of said that to a few friends when he, I think I might have even said it here when they, when they signed him. And then he was great in his first team for Brighton, and I was like, haha, proven right once again. And now he's turned into a really bad player. <laughs> I'm like, no, Mark, no. <laughs> it's Chelsea's fault, not yours, Ken. Uh, let's wrap up uh, with our last story. Of course, we're back to Saudi Arabia, uh, and Al Halal have offered a couple of made a couple of offers to Napoli. Uh, the most recent one at 140 million euros for Victor Osimhen, uh, and I can't get it out of my head now. But 140 million euros is pretty much what Spurs wanted for Harry Kane. Anyway, n- enough about Kane for now. Uh, a couple of interesting <laughs> things there. Um, coincidence? Coincidence? I don't know. Uh, 140 million for Victor Osimhen. Um, the player himself apparently has turned down their first sort of salary package, um, which is about fifty million pounds a season. Um, but it's also interesting because I mean I, you know, I don't even know what the thinking is with a club like Al Halal. But if they're offering one hundred and forty million euros for Victor Osimhen, does that mean they're giving up on Mbappe and they're going for another target? Um, speaking of Mbappe, of course, today at the time of recording, it's the 1st of August, means that the Mbappe deadline has expired and he's not signed an extension. Uh, so he will be leaving PSG at the end of this season. That's now confirmed. Uh, PSG's response is they're calling for investigations into Real Madrid because they think Real Madrid have basically been tapping him up. We'll see how that goes. Um, but yeah, Al Halal, uh, there's a, I've, I've thrown a lot at you there. What do, what do you make of this whole word soup that I've given to you? Where do you want to start? <laughs> Grab a spoon. <laughs> um... Well, let's start with whether or not Osimhen is is a replacement for Mbappe. The obvious answer is not necessarily. I think that it's seemed pretty clear that they will sign any and everyone that they can get their hands on. And I think that while they play the same position, the offering of Osimhen is completely different to the offering of Mbappe um, because of the the pull mm. that Mbappe has. Stop I think if they sign yeah. Osimhen. If they sign Osimhen and they then get the opportunity to sign Mbappe, they will absolutely like jump at that chance regardless. Um, so I don't necessarily think that that getting this player means that they won't not that they won't get 
Mbappe. It probably just means that they're mitigating against it and their best case scenario would be that they get both. Yeah, which which is an insane thing to think that someone could sign Mbappe and Osman in the same window. But this is where we are now with modern football. Well, they've already signed Malcolm and Ruben Neves and Sergei Milinkovic-Savic. Yeah, it's true. It's it. You're right. You were saying making making that point earlier about like the three most expensive or the only club with three in, in that sort of top ten. So um, and and Koulibaly. So I didn't didn't mention him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, God, it's it's difficult to even use reason anymore because reason has just just evaporated. Um, Victor Osman and Mbappe up top for Al Halal. There you go. Ugh. They've also got a player that you might just remember by the name of Musa Morega. Who I think used to play for Porto. He did, yeah, he did. Like a defensive midfielder, central midfielder, maybe. I thought he was a striker. Musa Moreira. The, the name definitely rings a bell, and it definitely was Porto. I, I can't remember. I think he's a striker. I think he was. He was like a big lumbering striker. Well, if they get if Al Hal get Victor Osman and Mbappe, he'll be a central midfielder. <laughs> Hey, if it worked for Joe Linton, it could work for anyone. <laughs> it could work for anyone. Um, but probably a good place to end it for this week. Uh, Rupert, great to talk as always. Cam, thank you very much. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshel.